There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 19 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part story. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Two police detectives arrived at Holly Mead, the home of a faculty member at Victoria University in Manchester. Alan, the occupant, had reported a burglary after a handful of trivial items had been stolen. The detectives did not dispute what Alan was telling them, and they believed the items were almost certainly taken. But they were not there to discuss a petty theft. They were there because while investigating the burglary, they uncovered evidence that led them to believe Alan was gay. In 1952... Engaging in homosexual activity was illegal. Like many gay men at that time, he was arrested and faced charges of gross indecency which could result in a prison sentence. At his trial, he pled guilty, was placed on probation and made to undergo chemical castration which would reduce his capacity to be sexually aroused. The hormonal treatment was gruelling and the side effects severe. The detectives who arrested Alan had taken his fingerprints and his photograph, but were unaware of the monumental impact he had on Britain during World War II. On the high end, some estimate the lives he saved at 14 million, and his efforts were said to have shortened the war by two years. But two years after his conviction, Alan would be dead. Alan 
the Centurion was born on June 23, 1912 at Warrington Lodge, a nursing home on Warrington Crescent in London, two years before the outbreak of the First World War. His father Julius Turing and mother Ethel had been living in India due to Julius's position with the Indian Civil Service, but decided they wanted to raise their children in the United Kingdom, so relocated to London. Alan's father, Julius Turing, was born in November 1873. Julius spoke little of his childhood struggles, but he attended Corpus Christi College in Oxford before joining the Indian Civil Service in 1896. Over the next 11 years, he worked as a tax collector and magistrate, travelling by pony between Indian districts, gathering information about the villagers' vaccinations, their accounts and the progress made in farming and sanitation. In 1907, Julius decided to return to England to find a wife. Ethel Stoney was born in November 1881. She was the daughter of Irishman Edward Wallace Stoney, a wealthy engineer who had developed the Madras Railways, a railway network in southern India. Even with her family's wealth, Ethel, along with her siblings, were sent to live in Ireland with their uncle. With six children of his own to look after, Ethel received little affection. As she approached adulthood, Ethel attended Cheltenham Ladies College and two years on she returned to India staying with the grandparents for the next seven years until a chance meeting in the spring of 1907 with Julius Turing on a ship bound for the United Kingdom. The couple were married in Dublin during October of that year and not 12 months later after returning to India their first son John was born. After a few years with the growing civil unrest in India and Ethel again expecting another child, the Turings decided to raise their children back home, unaware that World War I would soon be breaking out. They had not been home long when their second son, Alan Matheson Turing, was born. As Julius Turing was still employed by the Indian Civil Service, he took extended leave, however returned to India when Alan was nine months old and Ethel followed six months later. It was decided the boys would be staying in England, moving to St. Leonards-on-Sea, a seaside town that lies west of central Hastings. The young brothers would be left in the care of a retired couple, Mr. and Mrs. Ward. Mr. Ward was a retired colonel, and both he and his wife were harsh disciplinarians. During Alan's early years, by all accounts, he displayed no signs that would indicate his genius. He was badly behaved, throwing tantrums and getting in fights with his older brother John. He chose to bury his head in a book rather than communicate with the rest of the household. Ethel and Julius would return on occasion to see their children. In 1916, as the First World War was raging on, Julius decided it would be best if he stayed in India and Ethel remain in England with their children until the war came to a close. Alan and his brother attended school and Ethel filled her days with visits to a local church. The family of three would take occasional holidays to Scotland. The year after the war drew to an end in 1919, Julius returned home for a short time, though as Alan had been without a disciplinarian, he found this new dynamic tough to adjust to. Alan's mother and father would intermittently return to India and slowly realised between visits back home that Alan had turned from the young social butterfly he once was to a dreamer who lacked the desire to communicate. Recognising she needed to do something about this, Ethel removed him from St Michael's Day School, taking Alan to London where she taught him herself. 
Alan set off to join his brother at Hazlehurst School in East Sussex during 1922. While there, Alan's grades were average at best. He spent his spare time studying maps and reading a copy of the science book Natural Wonders Every Child Should Know by Edwin Brewster. On the other side of the world, Alan's father had become disillusioned with his position in the ICS as he had been sidelined for a better job in favour of a colleague. Julius undertook a protracted resignation from the ICS and to make savings last, moved to France, only returning to the United Kingdom six weeks a year so as to not be liable for income tax. The family would eventually join him in France and during the summer of 1926, Alan was due to begin his attendance back home at a boarding school in Dorset. Though there was a general strike affecting transport throughout the United Kingdom at the time, Alan's thirst for knowledge propelled him to cycle the 60 miles to Sherbourne School after arriving at Southampton aboard a ferry from France. Sadly for Alan, life at Sherbourne School wasn't everything he hoped for. He floundered. While he was able to comprehend some of the most complex mathematical equations with ease, was undoubtedly destined for great things, he earned little respect from the teachers. Education at the school placed more emphasis on English language and Bible studies. Alan's school reports often highlighted his poor performance in all but science and mathematics, and expulsion was a possibility before his parents stepped in to help. Time at Sherborne School was lonely. Alan only found solace in science and maths. That was until he bonded with a fellow pupil, Christopher Morecambe. A year older than Alan, the two formed an intense friendship and they discovered a shared interest in astronomy and science. Alan felt like it was the first time someone took him seriously. Though the two would never be more than just friends, Alan secretly wished for more from their friendship. Sixth form began in 1929 and as the pupils could pick their desks, they chose to sit side by side. They were inseparable. Alan was incredibly gifted and could understand the theories of the universe. However, Christopher could easily articulate them, which often resulted in Christopher receiving higher marks during their examinations. Over school breaks, the boys would write to each other, running through experiments they had concocted and detailing their thoughts on astronomy. Once back at school, Alan would sit in awe of his friend. For the first time, his new fascination couldn't be found in the lines of a textbook, but it was before his very eyes. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. His parents noticed the change in his attitude and his school reports were improving at a rapid pace. Believing his troubles to be merely a phase, they were completely unaware that such a positive influence in his life came from another young man. Sadly, the bond they formed wasn't to last, as Christopher was taken ill in the early hours of February 7th, 1930, and despite doctors' best efforts, he would pass away six days later. Alan was in shock and completely heartbroken. No one had informed him that Christopher had contracted bovine tuberculosis. He wrote a heartfelt letter to Christopher's mother explaining how sorry he was and how he would be channeling his energy and effort into his studies as that is what Christopher would have wanted. In the letter, Alan wrote, I'm sure I could not have found anywhere another companion so brilliant and yet so charming and unconceited. Alan also asked Mrs. Morecambe for a snapshot of Christopher as a keepsake. From 1931 to 1934, Alan studied as an undergraduate at King's College in Cambridge, often marking the anniversary of Christopher's death with visits to his home and correspondence to his mother. Alan would achieve first honours in mathematics, and the following year in his early twenties he would become a fellow at the college after submitting a paper on the Central Limit Theorem. Despite receiving the fellowship worth a few hundred pounds, the theory he proposed had already been solved over a decade earlier. The panel of judges believed his solution to be far superior. Throughout his time at King's College, Alan had a few sexual encounters but didn't embark on a relationship. Alan had been aware of his romantic feelings towards other boys when he was young, but to act upon them at his time in Sherborne School would only result in him being called filthy a pansy, or worse. At King's College, he was able to explore those feelings. Although Alan didn't hide that part of himself, it wasn't something he advertised either. Although other young men showed interest in Alan, he was often too distracted in his studies, or still mourning the loss of Christopher to notice. Alan's focus on mathematical equations and decision-making problems eventually led him to a point where he would need to conceive of some sort of hypothetical machine to calculate them. So that's what he did. In 1936, Alan would go on to publish a paper titled On Computable Numbers with an Application to the Eichhiding's Problem. In this paper, Alan proved using a theoretical device which would later be referred to as the Turing machine, he could perform any mathematical computation imaginable if it were representable as an algorithm. 
Through this, he inadvertently laid the groundwork for modern computer science and theory as we know it. In September of 1936, on a Cunard liner, Allen set off from Southampton and arrived in New York. Over the course of the next few years, Allen would spend his time studying under Alonzo Church at Princeton University in New Jersey. While he was making progress with his academic achievements, his private life did not see those same highs. Despite some romantic encounters, Alan was unable to truly be himself as at this time homosexuality was seen as a problem to be solved. As war was brewing, an organisation that was undoubtedly paying attention to Alan's work was the Government Codes and Cipher School. Though he was offered a job at Princeton, Alan returned to England and from September 1938 he began working part-time for the GC and CS which would later become the government communications headquarters. As foreign powers were using various methods of cipher communication, the GC and CS was set up to study those transmissions and possibly decipher them. Alan had been part of the anti-war council during his time at Cambridge, but the looming outbreak of war changed his mind. The biggest problem the GC and CS faced was the German Enigma machine, which they believed to be uncrackable as there was no single Enigma code. Using the machine, the operator would enter a message which would be scrambled through a system of notched rotors. In order to decode the message, the receiver would need a machine with the same settings to decrypt the communication. It was reported there were 158.9 million 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 combinations being sent across the German Army and Air Force each day, so this would be no easy task. It would have come as a surprise to Ethel that her son was now working on a top-secret government communications project. Alan's mother was clearly aware her son was thought of highly in his respective field and despite having the ability to calculate some of the most advanced mathematical equations, she thought of him as lacking even the common sense to tie his shoelaces. Alan played up to his mother's belief, and in between his work at GC and CS, he would go on to give lectures at Cambridge during spring of 1939. Through his lectures and work at Cambridge, Alan's talents were being noticed, so was asked to return in 1940 to cover the foundations of mathematics. But fate had other ideas. At the beginning of September 1939, the UK declared war on Germany and Alan reported to Bletchley Park, the headquarters of the Government Codes and Cipher School. Three miles north of Bletchley, Alan was housed at the Crown Inn located in Shenley Brook End. He made his way to Bletchley Park by bicycle. Alan was fully able and clearly fit, but his landlady, Mrs. Ramshaw, voiced her disapproval that such a fit young man was not doing more for the war effort. He worked tirelessly with a team of cryptologists using myriad methods and machines in the code-breaking process. Alan was first assigned to analyse the frequency of German call signs. Most believed this job tedious and mind-numbing, however Alan elevated the level of analysis of this mundane task to new highs. Though they hadn't yet cracked the Enigma messages, they were edging closer every day. Messages to be decoded flooded the rooms at Bletchley Park and many attempted to crack the codes manually with little luck, 
and it would seem, if progress was to be made, they needed a machine to do the heavy lifting. But where to start? While analysis of the Enigma machine in the United Kingdom was just beginning, Polish cryptanalysts had been attempting to decode the messages for the last seven years. The French Secret Service had acquired a copy of the Enigma machine's instructions in 1932 and passed these on to the Polish analysts. Understanding the method through which the machine operated allowed an element of success, but they only knew three of the rotor settings in the device, so there was still a tremendous amount of work to be done to decipher the remaining parts of the message. Unfortunately, this didn't last long, as in September 1938 the German system changed and all progress was lost, or so they thought. As the machine setting was no longer fixed, it would be transmitted to the individual receiving the message. The Polish analyst managed to create another process to decode these messages on machines called bombs, aptly named as they made a loud ticking sound, printing combinations on perforated paper. However, the Germans again adopted another approach which made the deciphering process even more complex. It would be the British, specifically Alan Turing and a colleague and mathematician Gordon Welchman who would create the British bomb and this would dramatically improve the time in which messages could be decoded. The machines were not always successful and even when finalising a combination it would not necessarily mean a match had been found. The message still had to be entered into the Enigma machine and translated from German. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but even after the Herculean task of decoding one message was complete, this didn't mean they would obtain anything meaningful. On occasion, some messages would turn out to be nursery rhymes, as the Germans were still getting to grips with the machines themselves, so were sending practice messages. The messages were in their thousands, and while the team at Bletchley Park might get lucky, and a stream received on the same day used the same settings, others might not. In 1940, Alan Turing was assigned to initially lead a team of analysts in a section of the cipher school known as Hut 8. They would be decoding the German naval Enigma signals. Convoys of ships crossing the North Atlantic carrying vital supplies were continually under attack, so something needed to be done and quickly. It was at Bletchley Park where Alan would meet a new mathematical recruit, Joan Clark, who had been chosen by Gordon Welchman. Women had been recruited at Bletchley Park to complete a large amount of the clerical work, as the civil service were very much against the idea of putting women on the same footing as men, but Joan was one of the first to elevate herself above others' expectations. As Alan and his team worked to decode the naval messages, it never seemed fast enough. As summer approached in 1941, it wasn't until the chance analysis of some weather ship reports the Allies realised that these messages contained the Enigma codes for the German Navy. Using this to their advantage, the British were now in command of the seas. The Navy had also boarded a German U-boat and discovered cipher material which contained the settings for German naval officer Enigma signals. The tide was turning. The German naval ships were now under continuous attack and Allied supply ships could be diverted to avoid detection. The Germans were so sure that the Enigma machine couldn't be cracked, they couldn't comprehend that Allen and his team in Hut 8 at Bletchley Park had done the impossible. Mm-hmm. 
Although obviously a brilliant mathematician and cryptologist, Alan wasn't without his quirks and still displayed a nervousness about him which people were quick to point out. Alan would bite his fingernails to the point they were almost bloody and his speech was staggered. While out of the office, he remained fiercely protective of his possessions, often chaining his mug to the heating pipe so no one else could use it, let alone steal it. Again, his practicality in finding a brilliant but unconventional solution didn't just extend to his field of mathematics. During the summer months, he would arrive on his bicycle wearing a gas mask. In an attempt to avoid exacerbating his hay fever, he would employ the mask, using it on his travels and no doubt feeling the better for it, much to the dismay of his colleagues. As the successes in Hut 8 were well underway, Alan had attended a handful of social engagements with Joan Clark. Sexuality didn't necessarily go hand in hand with marriage at the time, Alan proposed and Joan accepted. But it was only a few days into their engagement and Joan could tell that something wasn't right between the two. Alan abruptly acknowledged that he had, quote, homosexual tendencies and thought it likely the relationship wouldn't last. Much to Alan's surprise, Joan was unfazed. Attitudes towards people who favoured same-sex relationships at the time was not what it is today. It was illegal and those caught would be charged with gross indecency which could result in a prison sentence. Joan had accepted Alan's proposal, and he was free to be himself. The two enjoyed each other's company throughout the summer of 1941 and even met each other's parents. However, the relationship wasn't to last. The pair took a break from Bletchley Park and travelled to North Wales, but after a somewhat disastrous series of events, the accommodation not being available, lack of food as Alan didn't have his temporary ration card, and a heated argument, Alan called the engagement off. As Alan's relationship with Joan Clark dissipated, so did the success he was having in Hut 8 decoding the German naval communications. Despite being able to decipher the messages, the Germans were regularly transposing their coordinates, so even though the British were able to decrypt the results, they would still need to decipher the potential coordinates. Zalan and his colleagues at Bletchley Park were making some headway decrypting German communications. They were a small team with a small amount of resource. So in the autumn of 1941, Having little luck obtaining further resource from their supervisors, they decided to write directly to the Prime Minister at the time, Winston Churchill, on October 21st, 1941. The communication signed by Allen and his colleagues, Stuart Milner Barry, Hugh Alexander and Gordon Welchman, stressed how much assistance they could provide the war effort, placing their minor request in context against the vast amounts of resource being used in the fight against the Nazis. They listed four main issues hindering their day-to-day -day activities. Little would they know that their communication with the Prime Minister listing their difficulties would give the team everything they needed as a memo sent by Winston Churchill to one of his generals read, make sure they have all they want on extreme priority and report to me that this has been done. The war was far from over, but now the team in Bletchley Park had what they needed in the fight against the Nazis. As more resource was being thrown at this hub of code-breaking activity, 
has brought its own struggles for Alan. Security was paramount, so those working there could discuss very little of what they had found, and despite the incredible achievements being made, even the Prime Minister would speak sparingly on the subject in public. This meant that not only was Alan unable to share his sexual identity with the world due to the attitudes at the time, there was also so much secrecy surrounding the work being carried out in Bletchley Park, he now had to hide his achievements and struggles in the war effort too. He could say nothing to his family, who knew he played some part in the war effort, but had no idea how important his work really was and how he changed the fortunes of so many. In December 1942, as part of an intelligence collaboration, Alan travelled to America, putting his problem-solving skills to great use in New York. His clearance came from the White House, so he was able to move between different code-breaking laboratories, solving problems across numerical and speech encipherment as he went. He returned to the UK at the end of March, and his work at Bletchley Park continued. As the tide turned for the Allies, it was apparent that victory was nearly in their grasp, so during the summer of 1944, Alan left his lodgings at Shenley Church End and moved to Hanslow Park just 10 miles away. A tabby cat called Timothy, who shared the home, would often observe his owner dining on some of the finer items unavailable to the British public during wartime. On occasion, Alan would also meet with some of his colleagues, either going out dancing or drinking. It was during this time that he told his assistant that he was a homosexual. Though social attitudes were not kind to Alan and those in his situation, he didn't care as he had been somewhat protected from the outside world during his time at King's College in Bletchley Park. Interest in his code-breaking skills was waning as the war was coming to an end. Alan devoted a large amount of his time to perfecting a speech security system and this led to his plan to create a universal computer. This single machine would be able to handle any programmable task imaginable. In the spring of 1945, the Germans were surrounded. The Soviets advanced from the east and the Western Allies approached from the west. Adolf Hitler took his own life on April 30th, 1945 and the Nazis had finally been defeated. On May 2nd, 1945, VE Day, or Victory in Europe, was announced by Winston Churchill, which marked the end of the war in Europe. However, the battle continued in the Far East. Atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and August 9th, and Japan surrendered just under a week later. The surrender was signed on September 2nd, 1945, which marked the end of the war. With the war now over, Alan returned to King's College in Cambridge. In his spare time and armed with leftover parts from the Secret Service, Alan set about building a machine based on his learnings from the bombs, the Enigma and other creations of Bletchley Park. The work Alan would undertake during his years at Bletchley Park and beyond would lay the foundation for the creation of modern computing. Alan was awarded an OBE for his wartime service, but due to the restrictions on government papers, Alan's specific contribution to the war effort was kept hidden from public view at the time. In between his work and studies, 
Alan joined Walton Athletic Club. He had enjoyed running and began to take the matter more seriously. He may have even ran in the 1948 London Olympics a few years later, if not for an injury to his hip. Alan continued his King's College Fellowship in Cambridge, which would last until March 1952. Though the war was discussed sparingly, Alan was more confident and unafraid to talk about his preference for men. Sometimes he would tell those he desired of his true self, and sometimes advances were reciprocated, sometimes they weren't, but Alan didn't seem afraid of how he would be perceived anymore. Between 1945 and 1947, Alan found employment at the National Physical Laboratory in London. At 73 years of age, Julius Turing, Alan's father, passed away. This didn't come as a shock to the family, as Julius's health had been failing over the years. What did surprise the brothers was John's inheritance was less than Alan's, as John had borrowed money from his father during his younger years to pay for a clerkship. Alan disregarded his father's wishes and ensured that both brothers received an equal share of their inheritance. In May 1948, Alan was offered the role of Deputy Director in the Computing Laboratory at Manchester University, a position he accepted when he relocated to Manchester in October. He moved between positions at the university, working as a freelance professor. During the summer months of 1950, Alan purchased a Victorian property in the town of Wimslow. Named Holly Mead and only a dozen miles from Manchester, the house was much larger than Alan needed, but he eventually settled in and became good friends with the next-door neighbours, the Webbs, often babysitting their two-year-old son. Alan was not entirely alone in his new property, as he employed a housekeeper who brought him shopping and kept his home in order. Alan spent the next few years working on software for the earliest stored program computers. Exploring artificial intelligence through the method of communication, he also attempted to create a test to define some form of machine intelligence. He produced a paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, which attempted not to answer the question, can machines think, but can machines do what we, as thinking entities, can do? This exercise would later be known as the Turing Test, and while it is criticised, it is still in use to this day. The test mimics a party game known as the imitation game, in which participants have to guess the difference between a man and a woman when asked questions. Answers are written on a typewriter so as to not provide any clues other than the response itself. Alan Turing lived a generally happy life at Hollymead but it would be towards the end of 1951 when he would meet 19-year-old Arnold Murray and his whole world would be turned upside down. This is the end of part one. To hear more on Alan's arrest, the court case, the circumstances of his death and his lasting legacy, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
For just $3 a month, you can support They Walk Among Us and receive ad-free access to episodes directly through the Apple Podcast app before they're available on our public feed. Just head to patreon.com forward slash They Walk Among Us for more details. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. WarbyParker.com slash covered. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details flimsy staying slowing you down well it's time to upgrade armadillo builds durable north american made tablet stands and kiosks we're so confident we offer a lifetime warranty so elevate your business and visit armadillo.com that's a-r-m-o-d-i-l-o.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.